0: You got your Bibles. Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We're going to read Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 22 through Acts chapter 23, verse 22. All right. And so almost a full chapter, we're going to read that here in a moment, but I want to share a couple of stories with you first to kind of set the stage for what we're about to, um, what we're about to read and what we're about to look at. There's many times in my life where I would have benefited from a good defense attorney. Okay. Believe it or not, I was always not a man cut of the cloth. All right. There's some times where I would have benefited from a good defense attorney, okay uh, This one time in uh, I tell you two stories then we'll jump in uh, one time in, in middle school I was in I was in eighth grade, and I was in mrs brown's computer class, and Miss Brown was one of the sweetest, sweetest ladies uh, that I ever had the pleasure of being in class with, um, but those are the ones that I tormented and um, and so this was back in the day where the superintendent would walk into the classrooms and they would hand the teachers their paychecks, all right? And so on this day, the superintendent walks in, and if he was here today, he'd be able to confirm this story for you. And uh, he walks in, he hands Miss Brown the check, and I proceed to stand up and said, Mr. Superintendent, bring that over here. I'll take that. She does not deserve that. All right, she breaks down. I mean, her face is red as an apple. Uh, she just can't hardly help herself. Well, I get home, and yes, my my my, my dad had already found out because there was nothing I could do that he wouldn't find out. And uh, it's like he had a ear, you know, on the ground to everything. And so I get home, and so he puts me in the truck. He takes me up to, you know, district office and makes me walk into superintendent's room and apologize, And I just so badly wanted in that truck ride over to, the, over to the office, I so badly wanted a great defense attorney that could get me out of what was coming. Um, because what came didn't stop at the office. Uh, when we got home, more came. Um, there's other times, see, this started not when I was in middle school. I actually started, I'm pretty sure when I came out of the womb, because in kindergarten, was one of the first times I remember I needed a good defense attorney. First week of school, the teacher has us pick out a teddy bear. So there's a teddy bear in the classroom for every kid. All right, and so this system was a reward system. All right, and what would happen is that your teddy bear that you picked out would start on the top shelf of the classroom up by kind of the ceiling. And then there were shelves under it, leading down to the floor. If your teddy bear got to the bottom shelf, that means you got to take the teddy bear that you picked home, okay? And, and so it was basically, hey, if your behavior is good enough over a certain amount of period, right, you'll eventually take your teddy bear home, right? Or if you pass a certain amount of your spelling test, like, hey, your teddy bear will come down and you'll get to take it home. My teddy bear stayed on top shelf most always. Okay. There was this one time, though, my teddy bear got two shelves down, All right, and I did something that day um, that I shouldn't have, and so the teacher said, Zach, I'm sorry to inform you. I'm sorry to tell you, your teddy bear is going back up to the top shelf, and I looked at my kindergarten teacher dead in the eyes, and I said, that's okay. I picked that teddy bear out because I have the same one at home. I don't need it. She sent me to the principal's office. I got another mouthful when I got home. All right, we all can probably recount, all right, in our heathen days, uh, times where we could use a good defense attorney. Um, And what we're going to look at in this passage, Paul is one of the best. Paul's on trial, he's having to make a defense here, and he does it masterfully. Often like Christ, he puts on the clothes of Christ and he masterfully reasons and logics and cuts through the noise um, as he has to make a defense. And I want to pull some things out of his defense in the courtroom this morning, okay? So we're going to read this thing first, all right? Don't go to sleep because if I feel like it, we'll just do popcorn style. If I see you nodding off. Acts chapter 22, verse 22, says this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched out stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went into the tribune. He went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Here, here, here's the scene with Paul in the courtroom, all right, and he's got his counsel before him or his jury, all right, and looking intently at the counsel, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, "Would you revile God's high priest?" And Paul said, "I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, 'You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people.'" Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other and the, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, "Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring them down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. That you have informed me of these things. Last week, all right, we saw Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. Okay, and he gets to Jerusalem, and he heads to the church, and he meets with the church, and then he heads to the temple. And then why is at the temple? He's accused by the Jews of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden in their custom. The Jews were already looking for a reason to revile Paul, to stone him, to kill him, to stir up the crowd, and so they used, all right, this conspiracy of Paul had brought this Gentile into the courts and into the temple, and so they drug him out into the courts, and they beat him almost to death. And if it wasn't for the soldiers, Paul would have been beaten to death by the angry mob But the soldiers ran in and they bound Paul up in chains and they took him one on each arm and they were dragging him up the steps into the barracks. When Paul asked the tribune, hey, can I say something to the mob that just beat me half to death? And so he was granted the privilege to say something. And so right, you remember he waves his hand, the mob hushes and he proceeds to tell his story, his testimony all right, about what the Lord had done in his life. And at the end of that testimony, okay, at the end of chapter 22, he recounts to the mob the last thing. This is the last thing he says before the mob goes berserk again. The last thing that he says is that, hey, he recounts this vision. Early in in his ministry, he was in Jerusalem, and the Lord showed up in a vision to him and said, hey, the Jews are not going to receive your testimony, therefore I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles. When he had said this to the mob, that's where we pick up in verse 22. It says, up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices, and they mobbed again. They took their cloaks off. They shouted. They cried aloud. They flung dust up into the air. Okay. And so they took Paul into the barracks. All right. But the tribune on two occasions wanted to know why is it that the Jews were hell bound on killing Paul? What's at the bottom of this? And so he said, you know what? I have a good idea. Let's flog Paul and let's get the truth out of Paul. Let's get the truth out of what he's done that's making all these Jews bananas and wanting to kill him. So they tie him up to a post, all right, and they take his clothes off, and the soldiers have these whips, and on the end of these uh, leather whips, there's rocks, all right, or spikes, all right, and these whips were used to dig into the flesh of a person, right? This is what happened to Jesus, on Passion Week, he was flogged before he carried his cross up to Calvary. So said, well, flog him. And so they get Paul tied up. But Paul says, hey, he grabs the centurion, and he says, do you know that it's unlawful to whip a Roman citizen? And the centurion's like, oh, you're a Roman citizen. He's like, yeah. So he goes and gets the tribune, and the tribune comes, says, you're a Roman citizen. He says, yes, by birth, actually. I'm a Roman citizen by birth. And so they immediately release him, all right? Because it was against Roman law to flog their own. And so the tribune's still like, hey, I want to know why the Jews are hellbound, hellbent on killing this guy. So you see in verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason. Why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so now Paul's in the court and the council is in front of him along with the chief priests. And this, this courtroom hearing starts off with a bang, All right, Paul opens up, looking intently at the council. He says, brothers, I have have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? He calls him a hypocrite. You just had me struck for my opening line, all right, where you're seeking to judge me under your law, and you broke your law by striking me. You're a hypocrite. When he says you're a whitewashed wall, he says you're a hypocrite. We're holding court here, seeking. And you're judging me based upon your law, and you just broke your law. And to which then those standing by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay? Paul quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight here, which says, You shall not revile your God, nor shall you curse the leader of your people. And so when Paul says, God is going to strike you to the chief priest, that's in violation right, to the customs of the Jewish law in the Old Testament. And so they said, are you to revile the high priest, the chief priest? And Paul says, I didn't know this was the chief priest. Why he didn't know is unclear whether he was beaten to the point where his vision was blurry Or whether he had been away from Jerusalem so long, he did not recognize the new chief priest, Ananias. It's unclear, but he says, I did not know this was the chief priest, but I do know that the Old Testament says that I shouldn't revile the leader of our people. Saying to him, hey, I'm identifying with you. I know the Old Testament law. I'm not a ding-dong, okay? And then we get to the port that I want to spend the rest of the time on in this hearing. Starting in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived, notice that word perceived because it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to perceive. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial. He finally tells the tribune and the council why the Jews are up in arms. He finally tells them. He says, I'm here because of the hope, and I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. In respect to those two things, I stand before you. And that phrase is powerful because Paul accomplishes two things in saying, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Here's what Paul accomplishes. Because he knows that half the council is Pharisees and half the council is Sadducees, he knows what divides the two of them. And what divides the two of them is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels, nor do they believe in spirits. The Pharisees believe in all of these things. And so when Paul perceives, which is a weird thing that Paul would perceive this, because he doesn't even recognize that Ananias is the high priest. But the Holy Spirit allows Paul to perceive. we got half the council Pharisees, half the council Sadducees in his head. I'm sure he's like, hey, I'm a great defense attorney. Watch this. I'm going to divide the council that's in front of me. I'm gonna divide the council that wants to sentence me. And so he says, in regards to my hope and the resurrection of the dead, I stand before you. And immediately what happens is that the council begins to argue with itself. They begin to argue and debate, right? The scribes of the Pharisees say, hey, we find no no wrong in what this guy's saying. Maybe it was the Spirit who revealed this to him. We find no wrong in him. The Sadducees like, no, this ain't going down on our watch. So violence ranks out, and the council starts, they start fighting each other. And so the tribune looks at the soldiers and says, hey, get Paul out. Paul's about to get torn to pieces. Helpless Paul already looks bad enough. Get him out. So they put him back into the barracks. Paul accomplishes two things when he says... It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He divides the council, which allows him to fulfill the ministry that God has marked out for him. Because God was not finished with Paul. You see that at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 11. Take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I'm not done with you. You're going to Caesarea next, and then you're going to Rome. So I'm going to allow you to perceive how you're to split the council so you don't walk out of here a dead man. He prolongs his death in order to fulfill the ministry given to him by God. Which will happen in Rome, which we will get to. So he accomplishes that in his defense, but he also accomplishes this, right? Go back to verse 11. For as you have testified to the facts about me, Paul had a moment and an opportunity to testify to the facts. About God and about Jesus, when he says, I'm here about my hope and I'm here about the resurrection of the dead. Let me tell you about it. And I imagine the scholar Paul, scholar of the Old Testament, grew up underneath Gamaliel, the famous teacher of the Jews. Paul, who was soaring in the ranks of the Pharisees, looks at the council and starts with the Old Testament and talks to them about, here's what I mean about I'm here about my hope. I'm sure that he goes, I'm here about Abraham. I'm here about the promise that God made to Abraham. The promise of Abraham, I'm gonna bless your offspring and I'm gonna bring them into the land that I have given to them. I promise you, I'm going to bless your offspring, and I'm going to bring them into this land. I'm sure Paul said, I'm here on the hope of God's promise and his faithfulness to Abraham. I'm here on that hope that God is who he says he is. I'm here on the hope that David is a man after God's own heart. The scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart, and I'm standing before you in hopes that that is true. That even in the adultery and even in the murder, that God says that David is a man after his own heart because I'm keenly aware of my past. And I'm keenly aware of my zeal that led me to slaughter God's people. And so I'm here on behalf of my hope that David could be a man after God's own heart. Because then there's hope for me. I'm sure he said, I'm here on account of my hope that what Isaiah says in chapter 9 is true. When it says, for to us a child has been given and his name shall be. Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, I'm here on the hope that this will be true about the one that God says is coming to save us, that we will know those names to be true about him. I'm here on the hope that the picture we get in Ezekiel, when God takes his prophet on the mountaintops and looks down in the valley and says, you see these dry brittle bones? I'm gonna bring them back to life. I'm here standing before you in the hopes that what God did with those bones, he can do with your bones and my bones. That those without life can receive life. I'm here in the hope that what we see in Ezekiel 36 when God says, I'm going to vindicate my great name and my great people that I promised to Abraham. I'm going to vindicate them through giving them a new heart and a new spirit. My hope is that he's done that and he will do that. My hope is... My hope is that John the Baptist is who he says he is. That John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way for Jesus to come, crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. My hope is that he is who he says he is. And my hope is that Jesus is who John the Baptist says he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as John was killed... My hope standing before you is that your judgment against Jesus was wrong too, that he actually was the son of God and that he actually is the bread of life, that he is better than the man of God sent in the wilderness, but that he is the bread that does give true life. as Moses lifted up the serpent, my hope is that Jesus is the one in whom God lifts up to save us all. I just imagine Paul in the courtroom going, let me tell you about my hope. Let me tell you about my hope. And then he says, in the resurrection, in respect to the hope and the resurrection. I'm sure he said, you know my zeal for the things of the law and how I killed those that belonged to the way and I sought those that belonged to the way and I imprisoned them and I gave the nod to have Stephen stoned and there was nobody more zealous for the law than me. Therefore, you know that I hated Christians and I was on my way to kill more in Damascus. And it was on that road did I come to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in all of his glory, and in all of his light, Jesus showed up, blinded me, and told me, asked me, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, get up, go into the city, for there you will find out what I've called you to. I know the resurrection, I know the resurrection. For what else could explain? I was once sitting in your seats on that side of the courtroom. I was once a part of your counsel. Now I'm over here giving my defense of the one that you have slaughtered and the one that I have formerly slaughtered. What would bring me from that side to this side but only the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul accomplishes so much in his defense. He splits the council in half so that that courtroom is not the last courtroom he'll be in because he still has to testify in Caesarea and he still has to testify in Rome because the Lord's not done with him. But they also get a chance to hear about the good news. Let's bring it into practicality for us. Zach, what the heck's this got to do with us? I had talked in our life groups on Tuesday nights as we were studying the book of Galatians and talking about the promises of God, All right, that our inheritance is not based upon our works, but it's based upon the promise. That God made Abraham. We talked about this question. What am I hoping in that God has not promised? What do I hope for that God has not promised? Because in the courtroom, Paul says, I'm here in respect to my hope, and those are the things that I see in God's word and the things that he has promised. What do we hope for that God has not promised? And this is very real. This is a very real question because when you start to, uh, when you start to answer these questions, for some of you, Okay, your hope may be found in a spouse. Your hope may be found in your kids finding the Lord. You may find your hope in a job. Cuz finances are so tight right now cuz I've been laid off. So your hope may be found in in a job in the finances that come with that. Your hope may be found in getting rid of your mortgage. Your hope may be found in being approved. Your hope may be found in somebody affirming who you are. Your hope may be found in something that was lost. What are you hoping in that God has not promised? Because, in the way of shepherding this morning, in the way of shepherding you into greener pastures, into greener pastures, I want you to know what it is that you're hoping for that God has not promised. Because confusion is prevalent. In people. Confusion is prevalent in some of you. Anxiousness is rampant. And anxiousness is present in some of you. And so in way of shepherding you into greener pastures, I want to say to you, All right, in the things, uh, 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 the, the questions that you have when you try to make sense of the things that you see, when you don't understand the things that you're experiencing, there's a promise. And there's a story for every single one of those questions and every single one of those experiences and every single one of those emotions. We sang the song earlier, I'm drowning in my questions. Those one of the lines in the song. For every question that we have and for every situation that we do not understand and every emotion brought on by the things that we experience, there is a promise for every single one of those things. And what happens is this, when we, when, when, when we hope in the things that God has not promised us, confusion, fogginess, uncertainty, anxiousness, discontentment, discouragement, doubt, these are byproducts of not hoping in what God's promised. You may desire good things and true things, and that's okay, desire good things and true things. But there's a difference in desiring those things and then hoping for those things. And I'm talking about when we hope for those things that God has not promised. These are the byproducts. And some of you know that. Because that's where some of you find yourself. What happens Is that when we hope in the promises of God, there becomes clarity. There becomes a a point of resolve. There comes a point of letting go. There becomes a point of contentment where I don't need to know, I don't need to understand. I don't need the answer because my hope is in the promise that God made me and not in the desires that I have for myself. There's a difference. My hope is in the promises that God has for me, not in the desires that I wish for myself. Promises, promises like Matthew chapter 7. I take care of those sparrows. They neither reap, nor sow, nor gather, nor store up in barn houses. And yet every day they're clothed and taken care of. Because my provision is sufficient for their day. And how much more value are you? God's promise says you are of more value than the sparrow who is taken care of, who finds sufficiency for the day. And God says how much more valuable are you to me than them? Or the promise that Jesus makes when he says, I will send you the helper. And that helper will be a deposit guaranteeing that what God started in you, he'll finish. That's what Paul says in Philippians. And that helper will bring to mind all the promises that I've ever recorded. And will strengthen you and establish you. He says, I promise the helper will come. What would it be to hope in the promises of God practically? What would it mean today? to hope in the promises and not in the desires that we wish for ourselves. And so I can't preach on a Sunday at Gateway without preaching Acts chapter 2, so I'll go there again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What are you hoping for today? What would it be if we hoped in the picture of the early church today? What if we hoped in that? What if we hoped in fellowship together this afternoon? Where we bowled and we ate and when you got tired of your gutter balls, you talked about scripture and you shared all things in common if you hoped in that from one to four today, and I don't mean like, oh, yeah, 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 let's go. Yeah, I think this would be a good time. No, no, no. What if you actually hoped in that picture? What would happen? Would you lay down at night and experience a glad and generous hearts? I bet you. I bet you you would if you hoped in it. Would you be able to recount the Lord's favor on that afternoon to you and to others? I bet you. I bet you you would. What if we hoped in Acts 2? What if we hoped in the picture of the early church that was established by the promise that Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the helper. You know, there were those that gave their life to Christ on the mission trip because we hoped in the picture of Acts chapter 2 two weeks ago. Did you know some of the people that went on the trip two weeks ago are now establishing new fellowship with some of you in here right now? Because we hoped in the picture of Acts chapter 2. What will you hope today? What will you hope this week? Is it God's promises? Or is it our desires that we want for ourselves? I'll give you one more example of what I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the passage that my life stands upon. If somebody were to ask me, why do I breathe? It's this, why do I exist? It's this. And there's also a promise found in this passage. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is God's promise to me. He says, shepherd the people that I bring to you. And when the chief shepherd appears, I will give you the unfading crown of glory. That is my promise. I can hope in that promise. I can hope in that promise, and that promise is real. That promise played out last night. This is not a joke. It's funny, but it's a true story. It's a true story. Last night, we get home from a long day of celebrating. We celebrated Melanie Stark graduating college yesterday. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She told me, Zach. I swear, if you say something, I'm gonna. All right. Well, I said it. And then we celebrated, all right, uh, Tyler and Logan Brown, all right, are having another baby. So we celebrated the gender reveal. It's a boy, woo woo, all right, to which I sang Beyonce's song. Who runs the world? Boys, right? Some of you get that. Yep. Uh, anyway, so we come home from a long day of celebrating, and I'm sitting on a couch, and I'm looking at Acts 22, and I'm asking this spirit to reveal to me nothing. Can't, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around this passage. Um, my wife is on the couch. She's snoring next to me. That's not helping, okay? And so it's 10 o'clock now. My wife is passed down on the couch snoring. I still have no idea what and it's not I'm gonna do with this passage. It's like, spirit, what do you want me to say? What am I supposed to pull from this? And so I get up, because I'm a guy of superstition. I was a baseball player. I was a pitcher and so like in baseball if something goes right you don't change something, okay? If you change something you you broke you you broke the you broke the gods of baseball. You broke the rules. All right. So when something's working, if my socks are one way and I throw a no hitter, I wear my socks like that next time. Well, I'm sitting there. And I can't get nothing. I can't hear nothing. And so I said, I got to change something. So I can't you not. I get up off the couch at 10 o'clock. I go to the bathroom. I shave my head. And I said, I'm going to offer this hair as a sacrifice, God. I need you to speak. I'm not joking. This is a true story. I come out. I'm shaving my head and my mom comes walking in the front door. I said, mom, perfect, my wife is sleeping, can you get my neck? (laughs) And she gets my neck, all right? By the time my mom gets my neck, my wife had made it from the couch to the room. She had no idea what I had done, all right? So I walk into the room, all right, because I took a shower, I walk into the room and my wife's like, what, what, Zach? You're not getting in bed. (laughs) I guess you're not. He's like, you're not getting in bed. I said, you know what? I'd rather hear from the Lord than get in bed with you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Welcome to our house. So she went back to sleep. She, everybody calm down. She knows me. It's okay. All right. She knows me. She went to sleep. I went to the couch to pray and to listen with my new haircut. Okay. I didn't get Nothing. Nothing. I went to bed finally and said, Lord, when I get up, you better do something. I was telling Steve before service, before first service, Steve, I think it's coming together. But when I went to bed last night, I went to 1 Peter 5. Regardless of my angst right now, and my my uncomfortableness, and my doubt, and my confusion, that was where I was last night. That was where I was right when I woke up this morning. Regardless of that, I said last night, regardless, when the chief shepherd appears, I will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is something to hoping in what God has actually promised. I still didn't know, but you know what? I went to bed, and I showed up here, and I wasn't crippled. I wasn't crippled by not knowing. I wasn't crippled by the doubt, and I wasn't crippled by the anxiousness because I had this promise that when Jesus came, I was still getting the unfading crown of glory. There's something to hope in and what God has promised, and we've got to get away from hoping for the things that we desire. And again, some of these things are good and true, but they're not all things that God has promised. I said, what will you hope in today? What will you hope in this week? Promise? Is it a promise? Is it his resurrection? Or is it our desire? Stand with me as we read Scripture and pray as we close. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Lord, you're everlasting. You always were, you always will be. And you're at the center of it all making, creating, sustaining, and finishing. That's what Psalm 90 says. Before the mountains you were, and then you made the mountains. And then you made the birds that you take care of. And they don't store up. They don't know what tomorrow looks like. But you're sufficient for their day. And you made us. And you said, how much more value are you, Zach, than them? How much more have I promised you than they? My promise to Abraham to bless his offspring, that was a promise to you in Christ. How I felt about David is how I feel about you. That even in your sin, you're mine. And that you're redeemable. And what I did to those bones in the valley, I did to you. And when I said I'd vindicate my name, I vindicated my name through you. You remember back to kindergarten? How much more of value are you? God, let us hope in what you've promised and not what we desire so that when we stand in the courtroom and the world as our witness we may say the same thing that Paul says. I'm here in respect to my hope and to the resurrection of Jesus, amen. As you leave this morning, introduce yourself to some you don't know and then let's go bowl and fellowship and eat, all right? Thanks guys.